Vanessa R. Sasson is Professor of Religious Studies in the Liberal and Creative Arts Department of Marianopolis College, Canada, and the author of Yashodara and the Buddha, which we discuss in this episode. For those who do not know Yashodara, this largely forgotten woman was once married to the Buddha. In part one of this episode, we discuss Yashodara's rich, intricate story, as well as the research process behind the book. We also delve into why Vanessa felt compelled to write this book as a Western woman and how that position affects the context of her modern storytelling. Take a listen. Welcome to the Bloomsbury Academic Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Morofsky, and today I'm speaking with Vanessa Sasson, author of Yashodara and the Buddha. Thanks for being on the show, Vanessa. I'm walking into this episode, as I was just telling you, knowing very little about Yashodara's story, and I naturally gravitate towards stories about forgotten women in history because there's obviously a reason why we're forgetting them. Like hopefully a lot of people who are listening in today, I'm enlightened to the story that I think is like a very powerful introduction to Buddhism at large. I'm so glad. I've loved writing this book and I'm so glad that, you know, people want to read it and learn about her story because she is very much forgotten. So it's nice. Thank you. So if you could wrap this up in a neat little bow, what is Yashodara's story? So the story of Yashodara is, was the wife of the person who eventually became the Buddha. When I started writing this book and I would talk about it with people, the first question I got over and over and over again all the time was, oh, the Buddha had a wife? (laughs) And I've had this question in like Buddhist context, in parts of Asia, I've had this question. Here in the West, I've had the question that people tend not to know that he was married. Or if they know that he was married, it's kind of just a marginal character, like she's playing a part. So he was married and the wife existed. But beyond that, People don't tend to know very much about her outside of a small group of scholars and serious Buddhist practitioners who are very engaged with the literature. But for the general public, you would not be alone in discovering this for the first time. And so that's also why it became so important for me to write the book. Her story, it depends where you want. I can tell her story. I can talk about her story for like an hour. (laughs) But depends where we want to start her story because Indian storytelling is much more circular than it is linear. And so when we talk about storytelling, stories that come out of India, whether it's like the great epics of Hinduism with the Mahabharata and the Ramayana, or we're talking about Buddhist storytelling, they tend to span lifetimes. So that when you have Indian storytelling, we're talking about stories that go from lifetime to lifetime to lifetime. And so when I tell the story of Yashodara and the Buddha, I can't actually start it from when they get married in their final life, because that's kind of the tail end of their story. Their story starts lifetimes and lifetimes earlier, and that's part of her story too. And so we have this whole body of literature in Buddhist texts called the Jatakas. And these are stories that Buddhists have told and collected and preserved that tell stories of the Buddha in his past lives so that you have a sense of him moving from lifetime to lifetime, evolving slowly over long periods of time so that when he's born as the Buddha in the lifetime that he's going to become the Buddha, it's the end of the story. It's not actually the beginning of his story. So that's kind of, to just even introduce you to Yashodara, I feel like I need to introduce you to the kind of vastness or the cosmic nature of Buddhist storytelling. And it gets you to enjoy and appreciate her story so much more than if we just say, oh, they were married, because then I'm already at the end. 
So the beginning is lifetimes earlier. And so we find in these jatakas that these stories of the Buddha in his past life, he was born a crocodile or a monkey or an elephant. And he'll tell these stories like folk stories. So the situation will be that somebody goes to see the Buddha and asks him a question. And he says, that reminds me of a story. Once, a long time ago, I was a crocodile. And he tells you the story. And at the end of the story, he identifies who all the characters were in that episode. And he'll say, the lady crocodile was Yashodara. And the mother was my mother. We get all the characters identified. And what we learn from this is that all of these characters were in his life for lifetimes, that they kind of move through history together, which is a really beautiful way of thinking about storytelling. So his mother in his final life was his mother for lifetimes. And his arch enemy, who's kind of like the Judas of Buddhism, Devadatta, he was the arch enemy over and over and over again. And his best friend or attendant, Ananda, same. And his wife is almost always Yashodra. And so we have a sense that they have been bound together for such a long time, moving together from one lifetime to another, following each other and really being partners to each other for a very long time. So that when they finally get to their final lives, which is the story when he becomes the Buddha and she gets the name Yashodara, they've already got this whole history behind them. So the way I interpret that is that it's really a very long multi-life love story, which I don't think we have anything like that in the West. Our love stories tend to be bracketed between birth and death, right, of this particular life. But what we have in Indian storytelling is love stories that go on forever. And they get all these opportunities to change and transform so that we see her in different experiences of this relationship, lifetime after lifetime after lifetime. So you'll have stories in the past where she's chasing the one who'll become the Buddha and trying desperately to get his attention and he's not interested. And then you have other stories where he's chasing her and he'll literally move mountains to try to get to her because he's so smitten by this beautiful woman or they're born as animals or they're born as like spirits. But in each one, their relationship is different because they go through so many changes. And then in their final lives, they are the people who will become the Buddha and Yashodara. It's sort of hard for me to wrap my head around that idea of circular storytelling, but also even the way that you just classified it or categorized it, it feels like a truer depiction of human experience in a way because we are always changing. Our lives are always dynamic. And there is this way, especially in Hollywood, of telling a love story that feels very static and mm. one-dimensional. And it is really fascinating to me to think about all of these different lifetimes articulate a transformation of character that I think speaks more truly to what humans actually go through. And even if it is just this one single life that we're constantly changing and our relationships around one another are constantly changing. I think that's really true. I remember when I first started reading these Jatakas with this lens, like looking for the stories of the two of them together, I was looking for patterns. You know, I wanted to see like, you know, is it always that he's going to leave her to become a hermit in a cave? Like, is there a pattern that we can identify about their relationship that's consistent? And I didn't find it. Part of that is probably because these stories were written all over the Buddhist world at different times by different writers. And so we don't have a pattern. But then I think also it's expressing that notion of every lifetime is different. Every moment is different and their relationship isn't constrained by a pattern. What is consistent is their connection, 
right? Just like it's consistent that he has a connection to Ananda, his closest friend, or Devadatta, his enemy. These karmic relationships are collective and they're ongoing, that we are in relationship for lifetimes. And those relationships evolve and change and go backwards and forwards and they stretch in all directions. They're not stuck in a particular box. And her relationship with him is the same, is that she and him, depending on the text we read, it's always different, but they're connected. And so that connection is carrying them from lifetime to lifetime. But then in their final lives, they're going to have this moment where he becomes the Buddha and she is known as Yashodara. What's amazing is that I found this particular verse passage description in a Pali commentarial text that then I found everywhere that really awoke my imagination. Not only did they spend lifetimes together, but when the Buddha takes his final birth, this is a really big moment in Buddhist storytelling. Every Buddhist text does it differently. You have flowers falling from the sky. You have the gods celebrating, blowing conch shells. The world is trembling and quaking and thunderstorms, right? It's a really big cosmic event when he is conceived in the womb and then when he's born. These are moments that the whole universe is shaking with enthusiasm. It's not his individual person has no connection. His birth, his conception, all the big moments of his life are cosmic events that affect everything. This is for the Buddhist imagination. And so you have all these great descriptions. And in so many of them, one detail comes up that I found in Pali texts and Sanskrit texts and Tibetan texts over and over and over again. And that is that as he's taking his final rebirth, seven beings took rebirth with him. It's a really small line. It's like a nothing detail. It's just these seven beings took rebirth at the same time. And the seven beings are named. And I find this passage over and over again. And very few people have ever made a big deal out of this because, you know, compared to God sounding alarms and the universe shaking, it's really not a, (laughs) it's not something that you stop and really take notice. So it's been bypassed in much of academic research. Nobody's really looked at it very much. But I got fixated on this line and I thought, well, what does this mean? So who are these seven beings that took rebirth? And with one exception where we don't quite understand, I've asked everybody who tried to figure out this thing, it doesn't really matter. But most of the seven beings, they're all really important characters in his lifetime that can be born at the same. So obviously not his mother, because that would be weird <laughs> if she was reborn with him. But his closest friend, Ananda, the person who will become his attendant, his most devoted disciple, the Mahabodhi tree, which is the tree under which he achieves awakening. And this tree is a magical, special tree. It's not an ordinary tree. and it, is believed to be at the center of the cosmos. And so this extraordinary magical tree that is going to kind of house the Buddha as he becomes the Buddha is born at the same moment that he's born. And his horse, who's a magical horse, who's going to carry him across stretches of kingdoms in order to help him escape when he's ready to leave his home to become the Buddha, is also born at the same moment that he's born, right? So these are really pivotal characters, whether they're human or not, and in most cases they're not, but pivotal beings in the Buddha's life story that take rebirth with him so that you feel that collective experience of his life, that he goes through all of these past lives and now he's coming into his final life in relationship with other important beings, always in relationship, right? I think we have such an imagination in the West that Buddhism is this highly individualistic, almost lonely experience where you just sit all by yourself on a cushion and meditate all day. But the Buddhist texts really emphasize his connection to his family, his friends, the natural world, and the cosmos over and over. He's never isolated. And so all of these beings take rebirth, including Yashodara. And so she is there 
taking her rebirth with him, right? And so as the tree is being planted and as the horse is being born and as his best friend is being born, so is she, as is he, right? And so they're all arriving together to do this last adventure. And that to me says that she's not some kind of token wife just to prove that he was married. What this does is really kind of place her as one of the important beings in this story. She's not just kind of filling a box, you know, like checkmark, he was married. She's important. She was with him lifetime after lifetime. And then in their final rebirth, they arrive together. And so to me, this creates an impression. And maybe I'm giving this a very modern reading and I can certainly be accused of that. But in my interpretation, I see a kind of equality here, or at least if not equality, because you can never really be equal to the Buddha in Buddhist imagination, certainly a kind of partnership in the human realm where they move together. And I think that's really beautiful. And so before we even get to who she was in this final life, it's important to kind of see all of that coming into the story. I think what's captured in that story is that even if they're not equals, Yashodara was pivotal to that's right. formation. Beautifully said. I think that's exactly right. That she's playing a really important part in his life, just as he's going to be playing a very important part in hers. She'll never be his equal. I think that would really be a stretch. But she's there and she's participating in the story that is evolving. And she's not marginal. And I think we have set her to the side, in part because I think we do that with female characters. We've done that throughout history. But in part, we have really created an impression that Buddhism is highly individualistic. And I think it's not true. I think it's highly communal from how Buddhist communities actually have to organize themselves in the real world throughout history. And obviously, you've always had individuals who are going to take off and do their thing. But largely, the structure is communal. And with the stories themselves, it's a collective experience with everybody playing parts and supporting each other so that the story can move forward. The Buddha is not an entity that is moving through time independent of the cosmos. He's engaged with it and the cosmos is engaged with him. And so I say all of that as background really to make sure she gets her place because otherwise we could set her aside again. So I think that's really important. I think that's a lot of important scene setting. Yeah. Because as you said, this does not just occur from point A to point B in a single lifetime. It's, it's sort of difficult within the confines of our language and our type of storytelling to be able to capture this relationship. But I think we're doing an excellent job. (laughs) (laughs) It's different, but I think it's quite easy to. And I find it very magical and evocative of my own imagination. Like I feel like my imagination is so much vaster because I've had the privilege of reading these texts for such a long time. I feel like I see everything bigger because I've been able to pour my heart and soul into these texts that see the world as bigger and see the experience of life and of the human mind as so much vaster than the immediate moment. It's very enriching as an experience to see time is so spread out. And very humbling at the same time, because I've been thinking about this a lot, but just like the narcissism of our culture today, just like the thinking of, this is potentially a tangent, but thinking (laughs) about social justice issues or storytelling in my context as an American, just there is this pathology to center the self in all of the storytelling that we consume and practice. And so it is liberating in a way Just to think about the interconnectivity of the human experience. And to not give the immediate moment as much attention. That the immediate moment is in context of so many other moments before and so many moments to come and so many relationships sideways too. So yeah, I do think it undoes a little bit of the narcissism that we tend to have towards the immediate. 
when you're constantly seeing the stories as being so much faster. I think for a long time when we were doing introductions to Buddhism and you do introductory textbooks to Buddhism, we go right to the Buddha's life story and the Buddha's life story is almost always going to begin with his birth. And it's not actually the story, right? And so we do a real injustice to Buddhism by starting that way because what we're doing is creating the immediacy of the Buddha's life as being central. And it's not. He's part of time. His story is cosmic. It is vast. And that's how the tradition has always engaged with it. And so I think we have to do that in our imagination and in our representations of Buddhism to start getting a feel for this literature, right? To go bigger in how we engage with it. I think it's really important. So after all of this time, which is really the vast amount of his experience, he is finally born and she is born at the same time. And they're born in the same kingdom. And they're born in the same family. So that different texts will say different things, but usually there is some consensus that the two of them were cousins. So they really take rebirth next door to each other, basically. So they're going to finish this story. They're going to finish it together in the same time and place. So it's not that he's going to speed up and off he goes and she's going to have 50 more lifetimes. That also speaks to their partnership or equality is that she's going to finish her long cycle of lifetimes in the same life as him, right? So they're on the same trajectory. He's in a different trajectory in the sense that he's going to become the Buddha and she's going to have to learn from him but they're doing it together. There's still a sense of togetherness here. And just to like add one more bit of evidence of why I think their togetherness is so important, there's a wonderful passage in one of the early suttas, in one of the early texts, where these lay couple goes to see the Buddha to ask him for advice. And the advice that they ask for is, we've been married all our lives, all our adult lives, and how can we be sure that we'll find each other in the next life? Which is such a Beautiful question to be asking a Buddha. And I always love that this is some of the kinds of questions that he had to deal with. It wasn't about awakening. It wasn't about, you know, I'm going to go become a hermit in a cave and really strive to accomplish this. We just want to know if we can be together next time. (laughs) And they thought this was an appropriate question to ask a Buddha. It just also gives a sense of the kind of intimacy he must have had with his community. If we view any of this as historical, which is, of course, a separate issue. But in the story, this is how it's presented. And so he says, well, yes, there is a way that we can be sure that you guys will find each other again in your next life. He says, if both husband and wife have the same level of virtue and the same level of generosity and the same kindness, and he gives a whole list of attributes that you have to have the same, then in your next life, you will find each other again. But if you're off course, he doesn't say this, but that's basically the implication. You know, if one of you is like a greedy, horrific person, the other one isn't, you guys are on different trajectories. You're going to end up somewhere else in your next life. But if you're matched in your virtue, you will continue traveling together. So you'll find each other in your next life. And it's just such a beautiful little moment. And it's so nice for him to give that kind of advice to lay people. And you could see what was important to these people. It wasn't always awakening. Sometimes it was just, I want to be with her again. But if that applies to that couple, I think it also applies to him and his wife, that there has to be some kind of matched set of qualities that the two of them have that can carry them from life to life. So I think that's quite beautiful also. I have a lot of reasons why I think this is a very romantic story. And I feel like I have to justify it because we don't tend to read Buddhism as a deeply romantic narrative, but I think it is, right? I don't think it's just my romantic lens. I think I have good reason to see it this way. So they're rebirthed together. They're reborn in this kind of kingdom world. And now the writers are really going to focus on the Buddha. And so we don't know anything about her life experience. We don't have early stories that tell us what it was like for her to grow up what experiences she had. Like she's really not the point for the Buddhist authors. And so 
until the two of them are connected again, the story is always going to be focused on him. When she can play a part in his life, then they look at her again. So he's going to grow up and we're going to get his story of how he grows up. And the literature doesn't tell us anything about her. So all of that we don't have. And so when I was writing this book, and it's a novel that tells her story, but it's based on all of these early sources and other sources, not all of them are super early. Some of the literature I use is actually much more recent. But when I was writing this book, what I realized is that all her early life, I had to kind of invent based on what I knew of life in ancient India around the time that she would have lived because we don't have those stories. So what was it like for a girl to grow up in Northern India about 2,500 years ago? The texts don't tell me anything. So I have to kind of look at ancient Indian materials and connect that with her and create a story for her. Just quickly, I'm just wondering, because you're working with a lack of literature and you have to depend a lot on your imagination, I'm wondering how you sort of balanced amplifying this story with Yashodara's perspective while also remaining sensitive to the traditional Buddhist narrative? And how did you balance the narrative with your imagination and pure academic research? That's such a good question. It's such an important question to tackle. One of the things that I ended up doing, so obviously I've done research for the last 20 years on all of these stories. My focus throughout my academic career has been these early hagiographies of the Buddha's life. So I've been reading this material for a very long time. And so the research is kind of really deeply entrenched in me. I wrote the book going back and forth between my imagination and scenes that the early literature provided me. So when the literature gives me a scene where she plays a part, I would be inspired by that scene and give it a modern voice. But in a lot of places like her youth, I don't have that literature. So I had to make it up. And so one of the things I realized when I first started writing the book, the urge to put footnotes was very strong because that's what we do. <laughs> and so as I'm writing a novel and I keep wanting to put footnotes to justify or explain or to point to different sources, it was getting in the way. I couldn't write creatively if I was going to footnote because as soon as you footnote, the academic hack goes on and the academic habit kicks in. And then I can't be playful. I'm really trying to observe as carefully as possible. I eventually decided to delete and I actually deleted all my footnotes because I couldn't look at them and I didn't want to know they existed. So I threw them all away, like actually threw them, which is a very big move. And I just let myself write. When I finished writing the book, which took quite a bit of time, I decided to go back and create footnotes. They were going to be endnotes without any numbers. And so I created a section of notes in the back of the book because I thought it was very important for the reader to understand exactly what did I make up and what did I borrow from which text so that the reader could really engage with the sources as I did. And there was not going to be any confusion about anything. I didn't want to present this as like, this is really her story and then confuse my readers who might not be scholars of the tradition. I wanted to be as transparent about everything as I could be so that the reader had every tool at their disposal to make a decision for themselves about what they think of all of this. So at the end of the book, you have about 30 pages of notes and it goes by chapter. So I say, you know, chapter one, this scene where this happens was inspired by this text and is based on this research, X, Y, and Z. And I go right through the book that way. And then this scene I had to make up because I didn't find anything that could help me with it. And so it's like literally a map that takes you through my research so that the reader can understand exactly what I made up and what I didn't and why, so that they can understand what's happened here. Because I think otherwise it could be really confusing for a reader. And they're like, is this all historical? Did this actually happen? Does every Buddhist believe this? Right? Like, I think that's a very tricky place for a reader to end up in. And I don't think it's fair. 
So the whole story is set up in the back. And then if you really want to understand all of that, you can read it or you can just read it as a novel and not worry about that. But it's there for both kinds of readers. And there's an introduction to the book as well to like walk the reader through this is what's coming so that they know what they're dealing with. It's something that I was very conscious of the whole time that I was writing this book is that these are characters that are beloved, that are sacred, that have a very, very special place in people's hearts. And everyone has an idea of who they think she was for those Buddhists who have grown up hearing stories about her. Obviously, she's unknown in a lot of parts, but in other parts of the Buddhist world, she is known and she's beloved. And she has a particular picture and stories that are told about her. So I have to tread very carefully around that to recognize I don't get to do what I want. I don't think so. People feel that they could, but I'm not the type of writer that feels that I can do whatever I want. I want to kind of be super sensitive and aware of how important she is to so many people and how important the Buddha is to so many people that I have to tell the story very carefully. And so if I'm going to create a scene that doesn't work with the literature, I need to say why I've done it so that the readers can kind of navigate it for themselves. That's a very important caveat. And something I wanted to say myself is just, yeah, that because you are dealing with sacred text, you are dealing with a sacred figure, that there does need to be a level of sensitivity here as opposed to other figures in history. I think that's a really important point to make. And it kind of gets me to my other thinking about who gets to tell a story and how we tell that story. And I'm wondering, as somebody who's based in Canada, who I'm not sure if you can talk a little bit about your background and how you actually came to learning about Buddhism. I'm wondering, as a quote-unquote Western woman, how you've been thinking about your place telling this story? It's such an important question to tackle. I'm glad you asked it because I think it needs to be discussed. It's something that I thought about a lot. There were a number of things that I was very conscious of as I was writing this book from, oh my God, I'm a scholar, but I'm writing dialogue. (laughs) Scholars don't write dialogue. So I had to do a lot of questioning of myself as like, what does it mean as an academic to take my research and present it this way? That was one question that I thought about a lot. And the other question was about the sensitivity of these characters and how beloved they are, as I was just talking about. And then, of course, that leads to the next question that you just asked. And am I allowed to be doing this? Who gets to do what with this literature? It's a really important question. And it's a question that I think we've all become much more sensitive to in the last decade or so as we start to realize a lot of the damage that has been done with colonialism and with appropriation of different communities vilification, exoticization, like we have done some pretty awful things to traditions that aren't Western by Westerners. And so it's a question that needs to be tackled. And it's something that I raise in my introduction. I ask the question in my introduction, am I allowed to do this? Am I allowed to take on her voice as a Canadian, as a white woman, as somebody from the 21st century? Like, where do you draw the line? Who's allowed and who's not allowed? I had to think about that a lot. Obviously, in the end, I decided I was allowed or I wouldn't have done it, but I didn't decide it flippantly. And I realized that some people might disagree with my decision and say, nope, I think you're wrong. You weren't allowed and this book shouldn't have happened. I keep waiting for that. It hasn't happened. Nobody has actually said that. It may come. But for now, the reason I think that writing this book was within the spirit of the tradition itself is that the history of Buddhist writing is precisely this. So for those readers or listeners who don't know how Buddhist literature works, what we have is layers and layers and layers of sacred literature. Right. So Buddhism doesn't have one Bible. Certainly when Westerners were first encountering Buddhism, the 
first question that they ask is, even my students to this day, so I'll ask this question of like, what's the Bible? What's the text? <laughs> what's the one book that we all have to read so that we have like our hands on sacred literature of Buddhism the way you can do with the Bible or the Quran? And Buddhism doesn't have that. It doesn't have one exclusive text. What it has is a library. It has thousands of texts and there's no cutoff point where it stops. So what you have is layers and layers and layers of writing in the Buddhist tradition. And that writing goes right through to the contemporary period. People are still writing beautiful Buddhist teachings and biographies and poetry. It doesn't necessarily always have the same weight as some of the earlier stuff, that's for sure. There are some communities that have clearly kind of outlined these 10,000 pages of <laughs> texts are our sacred texts. Everything else is sort of sacred, but like there's layers of sacredness. It's a very complicated thing to try to understand all of this literature and how you place yourself depending on the community that you belong to. But what's interesting is that when it comes to the Buddha's life story and Yashodara's by extension, we find his life story told in so many of these texts and it changes all the time. So that it's told in one way in these early polytexts. And then the poly commentaries add all kinds of details that the early polytexts don't have. And then we find these Sanskrit texts that are going to tell his life story exclusively, just focus on his life story. And then another text that comes after that in Chinese. And it moves on and on and on so that my most beloved text that I used for this book is a 20th century Nepali text by a contemporary poet. He just died a few years ago. But it's a beautiful poem that tells the life story from a devotional position of the Buddha's life. And it's a magnificent piece of work. It doesn't have the same value that some of the early texts might have. But the fact that people are still telling these stories and reimagining them and adding their own details and changing the story means that the Buddhist story in some ways is kind of open-ended. The literature invites the community to keep imagining it. And so having spent the last 20 years reading so many of these different versions of the Buddha's life through all these different sources and that comes from all these different parts of the Buddhist world, I thought there is an open invitation in Buddhism. The way Buddhism is structured invites you to tell the story again. Because it hasn't just been told one time and this is kind of it. If you think of how the Bible works, you have Genesis. You don't have another Genesis. People don't keep rewriting Genesis. They comment on Genesis. So the commentary you're invited to participate in. I think the verse means this. And then the next generation says, no, no, I think the verse means that. And so the commentary is alive and ongoing and you get to participate in that. But you don't get to rewrite Genesis. I mean, you could do it as an artist but that's it. The tradition doesn't invite it as a religious practice. It invites commentary. That's how the tradition is structured. When it comes to Buddhism, the stories themselves keep changing and get rewritten. And so that's where I thought, if this is how the literature functions, then why can't I also try to write it too? It's never going to have the same quality, poetic or otherwise, or you know, wisdom or weight. And I don't think it'll ever be qualified as Buddhist text. And I don't want it to be. It's a novel. And I'm very clear about that. But I think the literature invites each community to engage with it again. And so I thought, okay, so here's this Western, white, 21st century woman of Canada who's been reading this literature for 20 years. It's a different kind of person than a monk or a nun in a monastery. But I now want to do it. Like, I want to tell the story again. And it was really exciting to participate in that and not kind of stand on the outside. This is kind of my academic thinking of this is how the tradition works. You participate, you tell the story again. There's not one fixed version that has absolute authority. Different communities might be, feel very guarded or say, no, no, the story goes this way because that's how my grandmother told it and my great-grandmother told it. That's fine. But then you go to another neighborhood and it's told differently. 